Have you ever had one of those moments when you encountered something so unbelievable that it left you utterly speechless? Perhaps it was an unexpected plot twist in a movie. Or the first time you saw the Grand Canyon. Or finding out just how expensive that weekend stay in the hospital was. Or maybe it happened while you were reading your Bible. Sometimes we encounter things in our Bibles that leave us with our mouths on the floor. Jaw droppers. Sometimes they're just Anytime you can get the minions in on a sermon, that's a good thing. <laughs> well, welcome to this time of looking into God's Word together. This is uh, one of the greatest things we get to do in our lives. Open God's Word and look in it together and listen for what He has to say to us. So would you uh, take a Bible, whether you brought yours or if you didn't, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. And turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, we're just going to read a little passage this morning, verses 34 through 36. Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 36. This is Jesus speaking here. Jesus says, Don't imagine I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. Jaw dropper. This is God's word for us today. God, thank you that you're with us, and we are depending on your Holy Spirit to help us understand. You've said you would come and be our teacher and that you love to give wisdom and insight. So Lord, speak to us. Speak to our deep down selves. We are listening for your voice. Amen. I was uh, looking back as I was working on this message about how Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I realized that the very last sermon I preached right before Christmas was how Jesus is the great light of peace. Who planned that? I guess I planned that, but I didn't really realize it until this week. This last sermon I preached was about, remember in Isaiah 9, it talks about how Jesus will be the prince of peace, that he will guide our feet into the path of peace. And we looked at our feet and, and remembered that in any situation, Jesus can help us be guided into the path of peace. My notes from that sermon contain these verses. A heavenly choir sang praise to God on the occasion of the birth of Jesus, and this is what they said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they will be called children of God. In the midst of the storm, when Jesus 
calmed the storm and the disciples were terrified, Jesus says, peace be still. And when he was about to leave this earth, Jesus' last words to his disciples were ones of comfort. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's John 14. And 1 Corinthians 7 says, God has called you to peace. Wait a second. And then Jesus says, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. What's going on here? To talk about a sword, divisions between people, as he says here, I come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. To talk about divisions between people rather than unity and peace, it seems like really the opposite of what the world needs right now, doesn't it? And most of us, if we heard that kind of talk, would say, that sounds kind of unchristian, doesn't it? I mean, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that is depicted in, in, in the Christmas cards we just got. What could Jesus mean by this? I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Well, he's quoting Micah 7. I don't know about your Bible. I'm using the New Living Translation. Mine has some of that quote kind of set in like poetry. You can tell it's a quote from somewhere. And if you uh, have a footnote, it'll tell you he's quoting from Micah chapter 7. And he's referring back to a time when the community of God's people was just being torn apart from the inside out. And it was one of the darkest times in the history of our faith. Have we gotten it wrong, seeing Jesus as a lover of peace and a teacher of peace? Is this uh, a, a reason, a justification that Jesus gives for his followers to use violence? It has been used in that way, many times throughout history. Miroslav Volf is a, a philosopher or a theologian, probably one of the most important theologians of our day. He grew up in Croatia and has written some really good, important things about forgiveness and about what to do when your whole country turns against each other and people commit awful crimes against each other. And how do you think through that in a Christian way? He, he says that beginning at least with the Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion, the followers of Jesus, he refers to us as the followers of the crucified, have per perpetrated gruesome acts of violence under the sign of the cross. Over the centuries, the seasons of Lent and Holy Week were for the Jews times of fear and trepidation, especially in Europe where he grew up. Christians have perpetrated some of the worst violence uh, during Holy Week and Lent as they remembered the crucifixion of Christ for which they blamed the Jews. Muslims also associate the cross with violence because of the crusaders' Rampages that were taken under the sign of the cross. Are people right to say that religion, including Christianity, 
teaches violence instead of peace. You've probably heard that. We've all heard that. You probably know those famous uh, lyrics from John Lennon's um, song, Imagine. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Is this kind of thing that Jesus says promoting violence? What's he getting at here? Well, let's look at the context. You can see this is part of a a long chapter that's all Jesus teaching. You know, we learned in seminary this little phrase, text without context is pretext. Meaning if you just take a text, if you take a couple verses and look at them all by themselves, they often are not, you're not able to see what they really mean. So we need to put these back into the the context of this whole section, this whole chapter. We tend to pull out little verses, but when you read the Bible at home, read it in big chunks. Like read a whole chapter or a whole book at a time and you'll find that it makes so much more sense. So what's going on here? As Jesus says, I come to bring peace, not a sword. Well, if you flip back to the beginning of your chapter 12, um, it's probably got a, a little title or a heading at the top. Those weren't in the original, but the editors of the Bible have added those. Mine says, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. Jesus calls these 12 people to be his uh, disciples, and then he's sending them out to do the kind of ministry that he does, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here and to heal people with the power of God. Sounds like a a pretty great job assignment, doesn't it? Sounds like a pretty great life. I mean, wouldn't you love to be able to go to your neighbor who has cancer and pray for them and see God heal them? And then when they ask, how did that happen? To be able to introduce them to Jesus and explain to them about this kingdom of grace that that Jesus has brought? Wouldn't you love to be able to, to stand in the lobby of the ER at WCA and pray for each person who comes in and see if God will heal them? And then to be able to introduce them to Jesus? Who wouldn't want to do that? So Jesus is sending out these disciples on this wonderful God-inspired mission. And yet, if you read chapter 10, most of it is a reality check. He's telling his disciples that their journey will be a lot like his journey, that there will be rejection and distress and persecution and heartache. And we're given a pretty dire picture of local governments flogging them, towns rejecting them, families betraying them, kind of culminating all in verse 22, all nations or all people, depending on your translation, will hate you because of me. Listen to what he says here. I'm going to start with verse 16. Look, Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. But beware, for you will be handed over to the courts and will be flogged with whips in the synagogues. 
You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell rulers and other believers about me. Verse 21, a brother will betray a brother to death. A father will betray his own child and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed and all nations will hate you because you are my followers. His point is this. Jesus is not an easy person to just look at, to hear and say, that's nice and move on. Jesus is not meant to be put into this box that we so often put him into. That's like Jesus, if you can add him to your life, it's like taking, a, taking vitamins, you know? They make your, 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 your body a little stronger. And if you can add Jesus to your life, you get a little more wisdom, a little more patience, a little more peace. He's like the icing on the cake. When you meet the real Jesus you realize he is not someone that you can easily pass by. He demands a decision. He's someone you have to either reject or accept. David Augsburger says this, Jesus Christ is the most divisive person in the world. And Jesus is trying to prepare his followers for that reality. That's why Jesus is called a stumbling block in the Bible. 1 Peter 2.7 says, Therefore, to you who believe, Jesus is precious. But to those who are disobedient, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is controversial. We so easily boil him down in this culture to a good teacher a nice man who loved children, a shepherd who carried little lambs in his arms, and all of that is true, but when you encounter the real Jesus, he's so much more than that. And he demands a response just because of who he is. He's controversial, and so Jesus is saying his followers will be controversial too. Listen to what he says in 24 and 25. Students are not greater than their teacher, and slaves are not greater than their master. Students are to be like their teacher, and slaves are to be like their master. And since I, Jesus, the master of the household, have been called the prince of demons, the members of my household will be called by even worse names. When Jesus says, I come not to bring peace, but a sword, he is saying that this would be the effect of his coming. Not the purpose of his coming, but the effect of his coming. Jesus really came with the purpose of bringing peace. F.F. Bruce reminds us that Jesus did not advocate conflict. His followers experienced what it meant to be peacemakers and reconcilers. And he really did say all those things that uh, we talked about in the beginning of the message about him being the prince of peace. You know, two of his followers, his disciples in that group of 12 should have been mortal enemies. Matthew was a tax collector. 
He worked for the Romans. Simon was a zealot. He was a revolutionary who killed as many Romans and people who cooperated with them as possible. And Jesus brought them together in his little group of 12 disciples. The other disciples and those two must have looked on this as a miracle of grace. They were peacemakers. They were reconcilers. When Jesus spoke of tensions within the family, he remember here he says that uh, a man will be set against his father and a daughter against her mother and in-laws as well. He says, your enemies will be right in your own household. He probably spoke from personal experience. In John 7, 5, we're told even his brothers did not believe in him. There's a a place in Mark chapter three where we see Jesus' family, his brothers, trying to come and get him and take him away against his will because they think he's gone crazy. It says that he is beside himself, they think. Even his own family was against him. But Jesus came to be a reconciler And we see that that tension between the purpose he came for and the effect of who he is happening all throughout Christian history. Uh, Jesus' words came true in the life of the early church and in Christians ever since. Paul knew that tension, the Apostle Paul, could arise when a husband or a wife became a Christian and the other spouse remained a pagan. And he wrote about this in one of his letters. He said, if the pagan spouse was happy to go on living with the Christian, that was fine, and the whole family might become a Christian before long. But he says in 1 Corinthians 7, if the pagan partner insisted on walking out and terminating the marriage, The Christian should not use force or legal action to make them stay because he says, God has called us to peace. Some of you have experienced conflict because of your faith. Maybe you have had in your job experience something, bumped right up against something that that you knew you couldn't do because of your faith in Jesus Christ and your commitment to him. And maybe that caused a lot of conflict. You may have family members who are always planning things on Sunday mornings and wanting to go out on the boat or wanting to have brunch and you're always having to say to them, ah, we're gonna go to church first. And they give you pressure about that all the time. You know that, that look on your kid's coach's face when you tell them, we're not gonna play this season because it takes us out of church too often. That is not a fun conflict to be in. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So Jesus here is not saying it's okay to use violence against other people in support of religion. He's saying that the sword or division is not the purpose of his coming, but It's the natural result of standing up and giving your all to Jesus. It's a result of who Jesus is. Romans 12 says this, don't repay evil for evil. Carefully consider what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, Paul says, 
on your, on your part, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, he says, live at peace with everyone. He recognizes that it's not always possible. We can do our part, but others may choose not to live in peace with us, and we shouldn't be surprised by persecution. We shouldn't be surprised by conflict. We shouldn't be surprised that following Jesus is not all sunshine and roses and hot chocolate. Christians in other countries experience this a lot more than we do. Irina Stepanova is a Christian in the country of Uzbekistan. And just a few weeks ago, on November 12th, police raided her apartment. And they claimed to be searching for illegal guns, but instead they confiscated three Bibles, a songbook from her church, a Christian magazine and booklets, 22 CDs and DVDs, and six personal notebooks with poems she had written. And now Irina is facing trial and prison. I just read also about uh, an incident that happened just before Christmas in Vietnam. Three Christian families were forced from their homes by their own relatives who were upset that they were Christians. And the village authorities just looked the other way. These family members attacked and demolished these Christians' houses and took their farmland, and now these believers and their children are living under a tarp in the jungle. I got to see a picture of it. And the police have refused to get involved, saying that it's a family matter. Jesus says following him will turn families against each other. Jesus is controversial. And to encounter the real Jesus leaves very little room for sitting on the fence. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian during World War II in Germany. That was a tough place to be a Christian during that time. He eventually was sent to prison for standing up to the Nazis and eventually he was executed because he took part in a plot to try and kill Hitler. He really wrestled with these issues of what it means to stand up for your faith, to let Jesus set the agenda for your life. For Bonhoeffer and for the students at the seminary that he directed before he was put in prison, as the the Nazis began to gain control, they could see that their future was really uncertain. They could see that an evil force was taking control of their nation, and that to stand against Hitler and his, his uh, government could lead to imprisonment and even death. And, and Bonhoeffer said this, the peace of Jesus Christ is the cross. The cross is God's sword on this earth. It creates division. The son against the father, the daughter against the mother, the household against its head, and all that for the sake of God's kingdom and its peace. That is the work of Christ on this earth. Jesus did come to bring peace. He inaugurated the reign of the kingdom of God and that kingdom of God is, is characterized by, by lasting peace. 
by sin finally one day being wiped out in the presence of God and the salvation available to everyone. Theologian Joel Kim puts it this way, the road to that peace is not marked with tranquility. That peace is ultimately what Jesus came to bring, but the road that we all have to travel to get there is not marked with tranquility. In fact, it's filled with division and conflict. And if you read the same uh, passage in Luke, where Jesus is doing the same teaching, he doesn't say the word sword, he says the word division. He says, I do not come to bring peace, but division. And I think that helps us understand what he means by sword there, not so much violence that Christians should be doing against other people, but that there will be a division between people as a result of who Jesus is and what he comes to bring. It's an inevitable because Jesus and his kingdom, they demand a response. And while many people welcome Jesus and his message, many people passionately reject him. So this week, we remember Martin Luther King Jr. and, uh, and we honor him and then the nonviolence that he practiced and we remember that it was met with violence. In one of his speeches in 1968, he said this, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expedience asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. He learned that from Jesus. <laughs> Total commitment to Jesus can be hard. And Jesus wants us to know the cost, which is actually our whole lives. If you read down to the end of this passage, he says, if you're trying to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give me your life, then you'll find it. Total commitment can be hard. And he wants us to know the cost. But... But right in the middle of all these warnings, we find verse 26. So have no fear of them. If you have your Bible with you today, that would be a good one to underline. Verse 26. So have no fear of them. Don't be afraid. They can and they will harm you, but don't be afraid. I think the only way to grab hold of that fear not, that don't be afraid, is to be all in. To decide Jesus is worth it, no matter what. He's just worth it. Whether my life is comfortable or dangerous or peaceful, or even if I lose my life, Jesus is worth it. Theologian Mary Paul puts it this way. She says, I think this fear not is only found in letting go of the transactional for the transformational. And this is what she means by that. She says, I'm not committing my life to be a disciple of Jesus to get a prescribed 
good life, the way I might define it. That's transactional. I believe in Jesus and he gives me what I want back. She says the transformational is really where it's at. She says, I'm a follower of Jesus because in him I'm invited into the kingdom of God. I am in Christ reconciled with God and with others and with creation. In Christ, I, invited, I am invited to breathe the air of grace and forgiveness and life itself. In Christ, I have hope and a life which cannot be taken away. In Christ, I am living a life where I am not the center and yet I am cherished. I am not promised a good life in terms of my narrow view, but in Christ I am promised an abundant life. It's worth it. I come not to bring peace, Jesus said, but a sword. Our challenge today is, are you all in? Are you sitting on the fence? Are you hoping to add Jesus to your life in a way that will just make it a little nicer and a little better? Or have you given him your whole heart, your whole life, your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you in no matter what? I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, it is worth it. It is worth it. There is no, nothing sweeter than you will find than a relationship with Jesus in which you are all in. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a, an old, old song called Be Thou My Vision. And I chose this song because it speaks a lot about giving Jesus your all. It says, not be all else to me, not meaning nothing else. Everything else can be nothing to me except you, God. You're my best thought by day, by night, waking, sleeping. Your presence is my light. We're going to sing this together, and I, I, I ask that you would make this your prayer this morning. And if you want to come forward and... Do some business with God at the, at the kneelers here and pray. Or just pray as you sing. Let's make this an opportunity to be all in. Let's stand as we sing.
Wesley wrote a prayer, it's known as the Covenant Prayer, and Methodists all over the world pray this prayer at the beginning of each new year. It's a daring prayer. It's a gutsy prayer. But I invite you to pray it with me this morning. It's going to appear on the screen. Here we go. All right, let's pray this together. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Now go, go with the blessing and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and share the peace of God with our world. <laughs>